You're listening to Plenary Session. Welcome to Plenary Session. And this week we have a couple interesting things for you. I'm going to talk about one abstract from Ash, which generated some interest on social media and which was presented as an oral session. It's an abstract I think that could have been done better and illustrates some nice teaching points. Next, we'll jump straight to the interview. Today's interview is with Dr. Seema Desai. Dr. Desai is the program director of OHSU Internal Medicine Residency, and she's here to talk about her experience in that important role. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll have more from Ash, and I'll have an interview live from Ash with Dr. Chadhi Naban. Dr. Naban is the chief medical officer of Cardinal Health. He'll be talking to us about the many roles he has had in his career. That'll be worth your time. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. All right. There's one oral presentation at Ash that just caught my eye, and uh, I'm going to have to discuss, because I think it illustrates part of the problem when you become too much of a believer in your hypothesis, and you forget that you're a scientist and you need to be thinking critically about your hypothesis and how to test it and how to challenge it. So this paper is entitled, Checkpoint Blockade Therapy May Sensitize Aggressive and Indolent Non-Hodgkin's Lymphoma to Subsequent Therapy. So what should you know? The first thing you should know as a general rule is that if you have patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, like the patients that are included in this study, and you give them a checkpoint inhibitor, which is that fancy new class of drugs that led to the 2018 Nobel Prize, you're not going to get much. In fact, they found, 33 authors found it, many, many venerable institutions found that they had given checkpoint inhibitor drugs to 121 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. Only four of those patients had a response, meaning their tumor shrunk more than 30% of the sum of product diameters. That is not that good. That's a 3% response rate. And from a paper many, many years ago by Tanak and colleagues, that's a response rate that you see in the placebo arm of placebo-controlled cancer clinical trials. So it may not be any more than the noise of the measurement. Okay, so we know checkpoint inhibitors don't work well. But imagine you're someone who still wants to use checkpoint inhibitors. What might you think? Well, you know, this drug's not working that well, but maybe it sensitizes patients to subsequent treatment. Maybe the drug doesn't work well, but because I expose you to the drug when I give you the next treatment, that's going to work super well. And in fact, that's the hypothesis that these authors tried to test. So what did they do? They looked at 121 lymphoma patients that they had treated with checkpoint inhibitors. They indeed found that very low response rate, as you'd expect. They followed these patients out, and they noticed that 42 of them received subsequent treatment. Hmm, 42 out of 121. Let me just crunch that number. Why, that comes out to just about a third of patients. A third of patients went on to get subsequent treatment. Who are Who is this third of patients? Is this the average patient that got the checkpoint inhibitor? I would say probably not. 
the third of patients, the 42 patients that went on to get subsequent treatment, were probably a bit unique. They were the patients who had a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It must have been big enough to require treatment. That's why they were put on the checkpoint inhibitor trial. And while they were taking an ineffective drug and having their time wasted, this cancer did not grow rapidly and result in the patient's death. So it must have been the 42 with the slower growing cancer that's just ticking along while the doctor is administering a useless checkpoint inhibitor drug for that patient. So it's a unique 42 patients. It's not the average 42 out of the 121. It's not picking 42 randomly. It's picking 42 selection bias patients. So now you have these 42 patients and you administer you know, standard chemotherapy or targeted therapy or a clinical trial drug. And what they found was there was a 53% response rate. 53%. That's actually, the authors are hinting, slightly better than what you might expect if you were just to give relapse refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients, um, you know, some off-the-shelf standard of care therapy. And then they wondered, well, why is it higher than what you might expect? Is that the fact that the Checkpoint inhibitor has sensitized this tumor to respond to these drugs. Okay, there are 33 authors on this paper, 33 people from venerable institutions. Um, they all, you know, participated in this study. And this is the conclusion they reach. These data suggest that in a relapse refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma population, treatment with checkpoint inhibitor blockade may sensitize some patients to subsequent therapy even if they progress or do not respond to checkpoint inhibitors. Patient survival and best response to post-CBT treatment were independent of the treatment regimen. Okay. So they think they have, they're on to something. Um, when I read something like this, I think, boy, out of 33 authors, why wasn't even one of them a scientist? So let's say you wanted to actually test this hypothesis and you get this answer. Now you're torn between two explanations. On the one explanation, there's something about the 42 people that could tolerate taking an ineffective treatment, that they were the ones with more indolent biology, they were the ones who were destined to respond to anything you gave them, their tumors were now bigger, they were ready to respond, whatever chemotherapy um, sensitive fraction of cells they had had previously that had been knocked down by chemotherapy now has had a chance to grow on ineffective therapy and thus very susceptible to chemotherapy. This is the kind of thing you might think. Or the checkpoint inhibitor blockade therapy sensitized them. How do you tease these two apart? Well, the easiest thing you could do is you could say, look, there've been lots of other candidate compounds tested over the years. Let's go back five, seven years ago. We had 121 patients treated with failed TKIs or failed kinase inhibitors or failed other class of drugs. Out of 121 patients treated in 2007 who took a drug in trials where that drug had a no response rate, and of course there are many such trials, what was the rate of response to the few people, the 42, the third of patients who went on to get chemotherapy afterwards? And if the answer to that is also 53%, well, then you're not showing that this is sensitizing patients, but rather you're showing this is an artifact of the selection bias of giving people an ineffective drug. But if it is 20%, 30%, then maybe you're onto something, right? So that's the simplest check you can do on this data set. You can say, what happens if this was a different class of drugs rather than checkpoint inhibitors? Do you have the same post-treatment post response rate when you put them back on an ineffective therapy?
Now let's say you did my study, that my proposed study. I suspect you'll actually get something quite similar to this. Let's say you get a 50% response rate because the people who can tolerate an ineffective treatment, have their sensitive chemotherapy fraction of tumor grow out, and have a response to chemotherapy later, that's a unique group of people. Now I think you're on to something slightly provocative. What about these CAR-T trials? The apheresis phase, the waiting period of these trials where many, many patients fall off the study, that's akin to being on a checkpoint inhibitor blockade trial. It's, a, it's an arbitrary waiting period by which you're getting an ineffective therapy and that's weeding out some patients so that some patients at the end are actually getting the cells. And that response rate for the patients who get the cells is quite high. But what would the response rate be if you were able to administer the drug to everybody included in the study? Well, now I think you might be on to something where you suggest that that response rate might be a lot lower because just like these studies have shown, they, it is not sensitization, but rather an elaborate screening procedure to select for indolent biology. So what do I fault these authors for? I fault these authors for not being critical about the hypothesis. I actually don't know if they're right or wrong. I mean, I haven't done my, you know, parallel study. But that is the obvious thing that you would do if you wanted to test this rigorously, if you were a scientist, if you actually cared about knowing the answer and you were putting on your critical thinking hat, that's the kind of study you would do. Now, if you want to be in the marketing business, if you want to just promote checkpoint inhibitors because they're new and they sound wonderful and they do have some effect in non-small cell lung cancer and melanoma, then this is the kind of study you do. You would not ask the critical question. And so I think the takeaway lesson here is that you know, if you want to be a good clinical researcher, you have to put your critical thinking hat on. You have to ask yourself, what if my hypothesis is not right? What is the alternative hypothesis? What kind of data could I collect that would tease you one way or the other? And if you want to publish this paper, I'll tell you what, if you did my little project, uh, it's much more likely to be published in a much better journal. But, you know, so that's the takeaway lesson. The takeaway lesson is challenge your ideas. Don't take it for granted. I think this study will likely fall apart if you actually did my study because I suspect that any patients who get treated with an ineffective therapy that excludes two-thirds of patients, that the group of people left behind will have a slightly higher response rate than what you might have expected for the entire group at the outset. I think that's just a simple... Um, artifact of the selection filters going on here. Well, that's just my take on this little oral presentation. I, you know, I think the takeaway lesson is be more critical and you'll do better work and you'll get a better paper. So it's in your own interest. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Seema Desai. Dr. Desai is a professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. She's the program director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program. And in the three plus years that I've been working here, when I talk to residents, staff, other faculty, there is no one who consistently gets more praise than Dr. Desai. So I am honored to have you on our show here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And you know, I wanted to start by saying, and I didn't prep you about this, so this is the secret. I want to start by saying, you know, the residents that I've worked with over the last few years, they speak very, very highly of you. So highly of you that I've started to become suspicious. Could she really be <laughs> as good as Bill? Um, especially the chief residents with whom you work very closely. And I think, um, so So I, I, I've been very impressed, and, uh, and I think we're gonna talk a lot about the topics that I think you're known for um, caring a great deal about and thinking a great deal about. Um, listeners should know that you're the, the program director. Um, you, you took over that role, how many years ago has it been? This will be 
This is the eighth year. The eighth year. And were you a willing uh, a willing <laughs> program director, or, or was it put upon <laughs> you? Yeah. I was not a kicking and screaming <laughs> enter the position. Um, you know, Dr. Tom Cooney was the program director, and I believe it was 26 years. So, as they say, uh, big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, 26 years he was the program director, I see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he's a beloved educator, so when I uh, so I wasn't dragged into it. In fact, it was an open position. Um, oh, a, and they actually put a search out. Not it was internal. Internal, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And basically, after a um, boxing ring match, I won <laughs> and got the position. Um, no, so I, it was an open call, and I applied. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to get it. What I did learn is, uh, you don't have to fill someone's shoes mm, you can you kind just of. you bring in your own shoes i see oh okay let's talk about that um and listeners should get i should give you a little more background about you you're from um you grew up in new mexico and you did mm-hmm. your medical school there um but you came to ohsu for residency and you've been here ever since you were chief resident um and then you were on the faculty in general internal medicine correct did you run an outpatient clinic or were you did you do mostly hospitals work so it, it's actually quite interesting uh you know, when I came here for residency, um, that was purely going from place to place, mm-hmm. seeing what would feel right, look right, you know, the same things that all applicants look for. And I remember coming here and thinking, first of all, it's quite beautiful here. Mm, the is, second, yeah. which actually was the far more important piece, is when I met Tom. Oh, I see. When he was running the session, I was like, this man is incredible. And, you know, that was at a time where there were no duty hours you could sort of it was like the wild west mm. truly mm-hmm. um and yet even in that time when i think you could argue that there were a, quite a variability in the way programs ran he ran it with such care i mean he cared a lot about the residents well-being mm-hmm. and that was a term that wasn't that wasn't even in vogue then. Never even right. used back and then. And he, he cared about well-being. I think the hard thing that, I mean, listeners don't know Dr. Tom Cooney, uh, he does a lot of work for ACP. He was on the Board of Governors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that strikes me about him that really sets him apart is he's just such an enthusiastic person. I've never seen him once without a smile on his face, without being very enthusiastic about me. You know, when he talks to you, you feel mm-hmm. like, you know, somebody shined a spotlight on you. You know, he's just so interested and focused and engaged and and he's like that all the time agree i i I think it's that enthusiasm that sort of pervades yeah i I mean as you know it's that's how culture gets created yeah by the people who lead it and he i think created a phenomenal culture that has persisted since i see and so um and you mentioned that you originally thought you're going to fill his shoes but then you decided you put your own shoes down what do you mean by that well just it is hard to fill someone else's mm-hmm. shoes, right? Um, Dr. Cooney is incredible at what he does. There's no way I could match his capabilities, his talents. And that's okay. I don't need to necessarily mm-hmm. match it. I can try and emulate as much of it. But I think whenever you take on any new role, you have to sort of create what you believe to be the right space for your talents, what you want to create. Um, so that's what I mean by bringing different shoes. It reminds me a little bit of something I tell um, trainees. I think um, one of the things that I tried to do, just, just about being a doctor, is like I really enjoyed sometimes watching different mentors, different senior people have conversations with patients and have these kind of situations. Not because I 
picked a single person to become like, but because it exposed me to a range of ways in which to do this, of which I'm like a kid in a candy store, I can kind of pick and choose. And over the years, I've tried to find my own um, thing. And I don't think you ever, you know, I don't feel like I've settled into my my space yet. I feel like I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to experiment and try things, but I'm glad I had exposure to this range of views. It sounds like that's kind of how you approach even the role of program director. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that most... I've I've viewed my sort of growth in life as amalgamations of other people's extraordinary abilities, right? Mm -hmm. You take a little from this Mm -hmm. person, a little bit from that person, and it begins to shape the person that you are. And Mm -hmm. I think that shaping is continuous. I see. So let's talk a little bit about the residency program. Um, We we have how many residents in our program? So we have a core Mm -hmm. hundred. Uh, and then four chief residents. I and see. then we have a fair number of um, other learners you know, from anesthesia, neurology. Who do their PGY1 with us, or at correct. least a, at least some portion some of portion it. Some portion of it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, our program spends time at OHSU side, mm-hmm. also a great deal of time at the Veterans Administration Hospital right across the Sky Bridge. Correct. And that, I think, learners uh, like a great deal. Um, it allows them to get a sense of two different healthcare systems. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us kind of know from training that the more different systems you're exposed to, it's kind of nice as a trainee um, because it's just amazing how many sort of institutional things are unique to a certain hospital. And you may never see that when you spend your right. whole life in one hospital. Um, and also the Veterans Administration allows trainees often to have a fair bit of autonomy and really um, to know that they're not um, an accessory, they're vital to the care of patients. And you know, the hospital is, would not run it were it not for their hard work and efforts. Agree, in fact, you know, there's this additional component that I think does make us quite unique, because mm-hmm. as you know, we had the eighth of a mile bridge that connects the two hospitals, right. which means that actually a fair number of faculty have credentials on both sides of the bridge. And I think by doing that, you can create rotations where you're seeing patients on both sides on a given day. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's quite unique. Mm -hmm. Um, Many places who have VA hospitals, they're located in some other place, right? Off-site. That's how it was when I trained. Yeah. Yeah. I had to get in a shuttle bus. Exactly. And this, I think, creates this sense of community that's probably a bit more unique because of that eighth of a mile bridge. Yeah. And... um, and it's a veterans hospital that takes a lot of pride in what they do. And the mm-hmm. people who work there, um, the leadership there, are that's their first and foremost commitment. Um, and um, they try to take excellent care of veterans. And I think they do a, a very good job. I, I would I'd be happy to get care over there as well because I think they do a really wonderful job here. Agree. Um, so I've been very impressed by the residents uh, over the years. I find that um, they're always fun to work with. I've never. I, 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 I'm not even just saying this for the podcast, but I've never. I've never had a bad, um, a bad um, interaction with any resident at any time. Um, I want to push you. I want to ask you about what is it you seek to recruit, and how do you? You know, who is the type of person that you're wanting to bring into this program? Um, what are the characteristics you look for, 
And, and then how do you think about the selection process as a way to find those people? Because we know, you know, you just get such a limited slice, a snapshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a perfect world, you'd get to wrote, you know, round with somebody for like, you know, a month. <laughs> and then you can say, you know, do I want to keep rounding with this person? And let's, you know, try out. Right. Some, right. So that's like, I feel like if rounding with somebody would be the best job interview. That's the gold standard. But we, we don't have that. So how do you um, think about who you want to recruit and how do you go about doing it? So I I do find this actually a very tough question. Um, And I I think you and your listeners probably know this. Um, The number of applications per program has been going up Mm. every year, and it's creating this sort of glut of applications per program. Mm. And it's not completely clear, you know, is this person truly interested in the program? And this is all being driven by the angst that the students have. Mm, that's if, what, okay, that's right? a great point, right, yeah. Yeah, it's the angst that if if I don't apply to enough places and get enough interviews, I'm not going to get into the place that I'm most interested in being in. Yeah, when I hear people who are applying to more than 25 programs and doing more than 15 interviews, I start to say, what is going on? Yeah. And you know that a lot of that, yeah, so you're going to get many people coming through who may not really be interested in Oregon and Portland and that sort of thing and coming to OHSU. And I think it's hard to know, right? It's hard to uh, assess that out, if you will, through an application. And so I think the, the challenge then is because you can't do that. What you really need to do is just take a holistic approach to every application. Mm. What that means is it's just a lot. It's a lot of work, Mm. but it's work worth doing, right? So the idea that we talk about when we're going through this review is, remember, every person that you're reviewing has the potential actually to come here. Mm-hmm. So you take it you, right. You're taking every person a- equally seriously. Absolutely. Okay. You have. I think you have to. You for have one, to. if you think about it, the pond has gotten so small. I.e., when you get you go from high school to undergraduate to mm-hmm. medical school. Smart, smart, smarter, smartest, smartest. Yeah. Right. So in essence, these are all people who are highly skilled. Right. So. Each person deserves that opportunity. Right. What I again, what's challenging is just how many of these applications there are. Right. Um, you get several hundreds or even thousands. In the thousands. You get thousands. I, I think most most programs are getting in the thousands. Oh now. wow! And um, and you can only interview a few hundred people. That's right. I mean, every program will have some limited capacity. Right. You can only take so many. Yeah. Mostly because you're talking about the time of faculty to interview. You want them to see components of your hospital. All these things are a resource-intensive endeavor. Mm-hmm. So you do limit the number of interviews that you have. I see. And you said um, you look at their application holistically. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? So, uh, you know, the because there are so many applications, I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, well, is there a way to use certain criteria to say that's somebody who wouldn't fit for us? Right, a litmus test. Well, and right, a and so test, yeah. boards are yeah. the most typically um, named mm-hmm. one. It might be your grades in the clerkship. Mm-hmm. Um, and a but, lot of places like dichotomize it. If you're below 2x, you don't get an interview, and above it, you have a shot. Correct. Uh, okay, or if you get a pass in, in medicine rather than high pass or honors or something like that. They exactly. Have a, yeah. And so when we say holistically, yeah. it means it doesn't, You actually, you can have failed the first time. I see. Passed the second time. The issue is, you know, what was it that created that scenario for you? Because great doctors 
we all trip here and there. Right. So you, just because that happens, does not make you any less of a potential for a great physician. So that's what I mean by holistic. We don't sort of apply any particular set of rules Mm. that then says, these aren't the people we're going to look at. I see. So what you do by that, I think, is you're doing the right thing, but you make more work for yourself. Well, and the group, and I would say, especially for the group who (sighs) does all of these reviews, right? Uh. I mean, we're a group of, I've asked, basically 16 faculty members to help me in I this see. process. In reading every application? In going through all of these applications. Cover to co- cover? to co- Cover to cover. I mean, this is letters, personal statement, the CV. And, 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 and do you guys talk, uh, you all talk, like, do you have a vision of the type of person you want? My, uh, the other way to put it is, do you want the same person that Northwestern wants or MGH wants or Hopkins wants? Do you want somebody slightly different? Um, and do they want the same kind of person? Are there, is there something unique about the place? Yeah. I, I don't know how to answer, honestly, that question of, you know, how similar are they, or you know, to somebody who, for example, applies to Northwestern mm-hmm. or applies to University of Colorado. I have really no way of knowing that. Mm-hmm. I think for us, what it is is who, you know, what kind of person do we want? Mm-hmm. Um, what you're looking for really in these applications is, is there – compassion somewhere sort of in that whether it's in I guess in the letter in the personal statement how are they articulating the kind of person that they are Mm. are they intellectually curious how Mm -hmm. is that coming out and again each of us probably has a slightly different approach to what does that actually Mm -hmm. look like Mm -hmm. but you're trying to hear it right even though you can't see the person when you read a cv when you read the personal statement when you read the letters Mm -hmm. you're trying to draw out who is this person right and sometimes you do hear it you see a snapshot of it in yes. a personal statement That's you right. see two letter of rec writers who just just they can't know each other and they're saying the same thing you know right that's when you really you, this person starts to take shape in your mind exactly and i think that's what you were trying to figure out so again holistically it isn't just that they have to have 15 publications like they were so extraordinary i mean if they were that is phenomenal mm-hmm. you know good for them too But the person who maybe didn't have that, but took on and created something very unique, for example, in the curriculum. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Right? Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's they did 10 different volunteer activities that had to do with the care of women, for example, Mm -hmm. or the care of homeless men, whatever. That idea that there is a a string through there that shows exactly their commitment to the care of people. My old program director was Dr. Diane Wayne Mm -hmm. uh, from Northwestern University, and she is a a phenomenal uh, person and phenomenal leader. And she used to tell us, and, you know, it took me many years, I think, to really appreciate what she was saying, but that the perfect resident was nice, hardworking, and smart, and in that order. Nice is most Mm -hmm. important. Hardworking is second most important. One, you have to be nice. Every interaction, right. when somebody calls you for something, when somebody asks something, you have to be nice every day in all of your interactions. And anything less than that in 2018 in the hospital is just not acceptable. Agreed. Two, you have to be hardworking. Somebody asks you to help out at the end of the day. That's something that, you know, gosh, um, the people who do that 
they get such a reputation of being the kind of person that you you trust and look for and you smile when you see. Okay, that goes a long way. And then third is being smart because if you put smart number one and you're you know rude That's to people, right? right. So, <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize that her advice is true not just for residency. It's true for I think your life. <laughs> I was gonna say life. <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah. Um, and so I was glad that she always you know, and she I think we even put it on like a T-shirt that she gave out to all the residents. Well, and quite honestly, smart. You can learn smart. Yeah, you can learn smart. If you will, right? Right. I mean, we do. you're doing this all the time. I'm doing this all the time. That's a lifetime goal. It's a lifetime goal, right. And and um, you, you always try to be better than you were the year before. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to sit down and spend time every day, you know, anyone can get, uh, can learn things, you know. Um, so I do think that, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's absolutely right. And so then... Um, you go through this process and then you, you must make some tough decisions in terms of like, we can only interview so many hundred of people. Um, you bring them out here. And I, and I know you think a great deal about the interview as well. Mm-hmm. You have thought about the kinds of questions you want to ask. And um, when you meet with, and you must interview a bunch of people personally. Correct. But you can't do every, you can't interview Correct. every applicant. Um, do you have the same questions for everybody? Do you standardize it? Is that important to you? Do you uh, have a conversation freewheeling like this podcast? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, we do have a set of behavioral questions um, that every interviewer is given. Uh, each of the interviews is 30 minutes. And the reason we sort of skew ourselves towards behavioral interview questions is because, one, they're very specific, right? Mm-hmm. It's thinking about... Can you draw upon your past experiences to either explain a particular part of who you are or take that forward and say, this is what I might be, in fact, in a future event? Mm-hmm. And I think as, as uh, uh, most organizations utilize behavioral questions, it's for that reason because mm-hmm. it's just so much more specific. Now, you asked me, do I have a standard set? I certainly have it in my head, but it is quite interesting how conversations can go in all kinds of direction, even when you maybe start with one or two behavioral questions. And I find that is the most unique part of being in an interview. I see. Is the, um, the, the way in which the conversation unfolds. Oh, it's, in fact, uh, just as a slight left here, you know, you and I and probably many are always hearing these statements that, oh, healthcare, what a mess, and oh, everything's a disaster. And mm-hmm. um, I... I find that the interview season is actually my favorite time of the year, even though it's this busy. The reason is, is because what you get to see, I mean, think about this. So in the time that we're done, we're going to interview hundreds of people. Who are these people? They're my colleagues. These are internists. Yeah. Right? So the Mm -hmm. first thing is, times that for, let's just take Dr. Cooney, 26 years times however many hundreds he, I mean, thousands of people that he's had this interaction. I've had this for eight years. Mm -hmm. How amazing is it that twice a week for months on end, I get to meet people of this caliber? That's pretty, I mean, in what other job do you get that opportunity? Yeah, every year. Every year. And you get to see the great and amazing things that they've done, the passion that they bring forward. And might I also add that... um, there's something about they're getting better. I mean, (laughs) you know, every decade, the bar is just getting higher and higher and every metric, 
I mean, I, you know, it sometimes blows me away, but, you know, I, I wouldn't pass muster if I had to come <laughs> back through. <laughs> this is exactly yeah. what we say every year. We step back and we all say the same thing, which is, oh, thank God. I'm not trying to get in now. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I don't, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, uh, um, I only told the office this, but um, now I'm just going to make it completely transparent to everyone who <laughs> yeah. listens to your podcast. Yeah. When I started um, in our... Um, in our office are all the old files. And so I knew my file was in there. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I said, so Let in the see. second year of doing this job and, you know, and trying to make this decision of who were we going to invite, who would we not be able to invite? I was, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to pull out my file and I'm going to see, it, would I actually get an interview now? I was going to say, did you take the name and then put it back in the pile of apps? <laughs> That's what I should have done. That would have been the better one. I did my own self-assessment. Yeah, yeah. I gave myself a score that would not have even gotten me close to an interview here. Wow. But that speaks to the, you know, the Flynn effect of uh, of application that we were trending upward. Mm-hmm. I guess I want to separate. I bet, I bet part of it, though, is um, sort of an arms race that may be, may be a little bit counterproductive. You know, like everyone wants more public, you know, I got an email the other day and it was like, I would really like to work with you, Dr. Prasad. I read about your work. Um, I am currently a sophomore in high school. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you should be enjoying your life. What do you, what do you want to do this for? Yeah, plenty, you know, but so there's that kind of arms race meant. But I think another part of it is though, I mean, a lot of people are genuinely doing things that they really care about. And, um, I mean, we might live in an age where younger people are just more activist in the world, That's and that right. might be a good thing. It's the ground up sort yeah. of mentality, right? Yeah. I will take ownership over this issue. In fact, my son was just telling me uh, last night they have to give an oral presentation on, quote, a problem that they know about or have experienced, and then how are they going to solve this? You know, and I said, well, that's really interesting. Uh, I said, what, which one are you going to choose? And he said, well, I, I, I'm picking global warming. Wow. Yeah. And then he started giving me all these statistics. He's like, do you know, like, who is the number one um, perpetrator of this? And it was just fascinating to listen. And he's 13. Well, yeah. Right? So yeah. I do think you're quite correct. Yeah. I, I think um, each generation has become more and more thoughtful about, okay, what is it that I'm gonna take on and how am I going to fix this? Yeah, and that's, um, and, and, and you're, I think you're right that um, one should, you know, we take it for granted, that, but we have a privilege to get to talk to the, so many such people. Oh. And I'll tell you what, I think one mark that the um, interview is kind of a privilege is the number of times somebody knocks on my door saying your time is up and I have totally forgotten <laughs> 30 minutes has passed, right? Uh, same, yeah. same. In fact, it's a running joke in our office. It's now they know to knock five minutes sooner. <laughs> to and give the th- warning. Exactly. Yeah. That it's you, ha- yeah. <laughs> they made the mistake of telling me though it was the five minute warning mark. So now I just keep running I, through. I just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you about... Um, this is something that a couple of the chiefs have mentioned to me over the years is that they feel that you take this very seriously and you're very committed um, to resident wellness, work-life balance. And that's something that, you know, those are buzzwords that get talked mm-hmm. a lot about, uh, talked about a lot. Um, but, you know, when I hear residents talk about it in the context of what, what you do, um, they're not using it as a buzzword. They say this is somebody who really, this matters to her a great deal. So... What do you? What does that? What do these words mean? And hmm. and wh- and wh- they matter to you. And what do you do about it? 
I think it comes down to the idea that if we don't really care for ourselves, right, how is it really possible for you to do a great job caring for others? Mm-hmm. You have to be fulfilled yourself. And maybe, let's just say you're not. Maybe you have just given externally always. At some point that ends, yeah. right? You run out of gas. I think the example that, I mean, that raises in my mind is that 1970s book, House of God. Mm-hmm. House of God, people read, and the it, what it is, is is a book about somebody who has no gas in the tank. That's right. He's been worked so much, he's and, and nobody has gas in the tank. And every interaction with any other person is a little hostile, a little adversarial, and there's no empathy. Uh, not no empathy, but low empathy. Right. Uh, and patients be, uh, are viewed in that book um, I think as a burden and a punishment rather than a privilege to take care of. Uh, and that has to do, I think, with wellness. Yeah. Well, and if we do this right, and I'm not, by the way, I don't want to presume that we have all the answers. We do right. not have all the answers, right. right? But if, I think we will get it right at some point. I, I, I hope this, and I believe this, but I think we will get it right when we can say to every resident, the vision that you had when you came in to medical school and a residency, the ideal of who you are, that that doesn't change at the end of all of your training, medical school, residency, and fellowship, that you still walk out and you say, I am that person, Wow! right? I am gonna give the way that I know I can, but you can't do that unless you care for yourself as well at the same time. I just don't think that's possible. And like I said, at some point, even if you don't recognize it now, at some point in your career, you will find when the gas tank goes to empty. Hmm. And some of the things, specific things you do to help them do that is, I understand, you make time for them to go see the doctor themselves. Well, yeah, so, and I I don't take credit for this, uh, to be clear, Mm -hmm. right? This is an institutional effort, and I do share this with applicants who come. What I appreciate about here is it is a culture. That's different than just also saying, well, I offer this thing and, you know, we have bowling night. All those things are great, but there has to be an overriding culture, Mm. right? Um, Purpose, people, and culture. All three are critical for something to work well. So if you talk about wellness and resiliency, it has to be about all three of those things. So the culture part is this institution has a resident wellness center Mm -hmm. that is free and confidential. Mm -hmm. What we say to the residents is it does not matter to us. You in if you need to see them, you don't even have to say that's where you're going. You Mm -hmm. just say to us, I need to go see somebody. I have an appointment. Right. You go. And we also say it shouldn't matter whether you're in the ICU on a consult service in the clinic, it should not matter because the location should not stop you from seeking that care. Mm-hmm. Even though I know that that's how people think. They're like, well, yeah, you know. I'm, I'm on the busy month. I can't I, do I, it. I'm so, the yeah. ICU, I can't leave the ICU. It's like, but if you're hurting yeah. and you need to see someone, you need to go because you will do a much better job yeah. for your patients yeah. if you've cared for yourself. Yeah. So you have to, I think it's all those things. You have to care for the person. You have to make sure that culture is there. And part of the culture is you model it because um, you're not here until 8 o'clock every day, you know. You model it in what you do. I, I mean. Work hard and, I, and I hope it. so. Okay. I hope so. I hope so. 
I think the cult, the culture thing is the hardest thing because um, I think when when people get together and discuss like what can we do about this problem, people want you know concrete, tangible things. Mm-hmm. And what's very difficult is to say that some of these problems get better when you have leadership that kind of embodies it or cares about it, and it's and they try to weave it into everything they do. Yeah, well, it's so if you think about well-being and resiliency, um, as uh, you know, Dr. Daryl and Moyer. I don't know. So she's the CEO of ACP. Oh, okay. Extraordinary woman, um, really, in so many ways. I I believe it was her who I heard say this once in a lecture about well-being, like caring for yourself. You can't yoga your way out of burnout. <laughs> I, saw, I, heard, I saw that quote online. Uh, that's a great quote. Yeah, it's right? true. Yeah, You can't just add a little Band-Aid on, right. on, on, the, on the hemorrhage of burnout. You know, you have to really address it at the root. Yeah, Yeah. so the, the idea here is, and I, I think this is being talked about more and more, that there are personal things we all can do to help ourselves. But there are structural things that can be done, right? So culture is driven by saying, have we addressed both things? So this institution, for example, structurally, as a residency program, are we addressing structural issues that get in the way of well-being and resiliency? And if we haven't done that, we can't then just say to the residents, come meet us uh, you know, t- next Tuesday night for bowling right. and somehow think that that's going to fix it. That isn't going to fix it. Right. I'll give you an example of like the culture extreme on the other end. Many years ago, my friend trained in a uh, very intense surgical subspecialty. And this is a program where there was something like eight or nine residents total, you know, for the whole program. And they, and they did the, you know, 100-hour weeks, I mean, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then, um, and then I asked him once, like, what happens when you're, like, one of you is sick? And, um, like, you really, you know, you're bad, cold, you know, you're sick. You just can't get out of bed. What, what happens? What is the mechanism? Because in my program, we had an elaborate system of jeopardy. You call one person, and there's mm-hmm. three people backed up. And, you know, we would find somebody to cover. You know, there's always a system. You just let the chief know, and you're, you know, you can, you, if you need, you're sick, you're sick. Um, and he said, uh, there is no, there's no such program. And then I was like, well, what if somebody, like, physically can't get out of bed? And he said, we will drive to their house knock on the door and grab him by the collar and bring him to work. And I was like, oh, so, and that was the culture, uh, that, that it was just not an option. And so people did uh, work when sick. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that was a good thing. <laughs> not at all. And I think you alluded to this, but it, I think it changes someone's personality a little bit over, over years of that. And I don't know, maybe the person on the inside doesn't come to see that their personality has changed. Right. But their high school friend will see it. Right. You know, the people around them will see that it's changed. They may not feel bad that it's changed necessarily, but it will change in the way that some of their enthusiasm will be dampened and their compassion will be dampened. Um, and I don't know what the implication of that is. You know, I'm, I, it sounds very negative, but I'm sure in some ways maybe it allows them to be, I don't know, to do some parts of the job better, more disinterestedly. But... I think it is lamentable, and I think the goal should be, as you put it, that you're the same person when you go into this field as you when you come out of it, um, and the field doesn't take that away from you, and then you decide the kind of person That's you want right. to be. That's right. Let me ask you, should residency be the same length for every resident? Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a, you know, it should, uh, you know, all our training is like, um, we are one of these stra- you know unique professions that like you know what does it mean to be a doctor? You were there for four years and you know you didn't. That's it. You're the doctor. You're, ah, you're the doctor. But um, people have different learning arcs. People have different um, speed. I wonder, could there be a competency based residency where you know for the all star residents um, of which I wouldn't even put my I, know, I certainly wouldn't put myself in, but somebody's getting out in two years because they've just mastered all of the internal medicine trait. But then some some people maybe four years. Um, 
but I guess that kind of alludes to the idea of like, what do you do with the residents who are a little slow or who are struggling? How do you mm-hmm. how do you think about getting them back, you know, with the rest of everyone? Well, it's you know, you bring up this larger question of is time based learning the right approach? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have this now anyway, right? All the <clears throat> way for, uh, primary education, secondary education, it's all right, time based, right? right? It, right. There's not any part of our entire educational system that isn't. Although there right. are some people, you know quote-unquote geniuses mm-hmm. who skip a grade here and there or who accelerate quite a bit. But as we know, those are very few. They're very few. Most mm-hmm. of us sort of just keep going from one year to the next year. So if we could create the I- ideal system, competency-based would make a lot of sense, right? But that's going to take work to make sure that whatever assessments we create actually are the assessments that are looking at the things that do matter mm-hmm. and that have we decided then what are those measures in assessments that we say, oh, once you've achieved this, we feel entirely comfortable that you could do this actually on your own. So as you pointed out, after two years, what if somebody got every assessment slash competency? We should then be able to say, best wishes for your next step. Right, right. But until that happens, I think we're still going to be in this time base. Now, do I think that's changing? I think the conversation is growing louder and louder. And as you probably know, in Canada, I mean, they do have competency-based. Um, I didn't know that. No, there's an orthopedic yeah. program, and I'm sure there are others, um, that it's more competency-based. You know, you could be doing a knee surgery, for example, and if you're not quite ready, you're not quite ready. You need more time doing that. And mm-hmm. I think we could probably create the same things in internal medicine. I, I, um, I think that would be, you know, a really, that, that would be, I think it's a great idea. And, you know, I think that's the goal. Um, one of the things I think what it means is we have to come to think of residency more about the education side and less about the service side. I right. mean, the reality is a lot of hospitals see it as this is a labor force, and it's a labor force that's acquired at a certain price, which CMS is discounting. And um, it's a very useful labor force, and it's the um, the grease that lets the rest of the machine run because this is a labor force that can be expanded in a way that mm, for higher labor may not be always agree to and, you know, expand. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, but I do think that, you know, we forget sometimes that, if, you know, if the goal of this entire process is to educate the best doctors you possibly can, then it should shrink and contract depending on the person. And we should think a lot more about how, what are the skills we want the doctor to have and how to assess them. I think that would be that would be the biggest and best project to take on, right? Yeah. To be in a system in which you could, in fact, unbundle everything. You know, and, and 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 you know when I when I read about these billionaires giving um, money to make medical school free or something like that, I think that you know with that kind of money and those resources, they should invest in just trying to create a school that is this kind of flexible model. Mm-hmm. You know, really take the high risk. Um, and you talked about geniuses, but I don't know if you know when I trained, I trained um, at University of Chicago, and one of the uh, the students was Shoyano, who was um, uh, I think he started when he was twelve. Um, he was about 14 or 15, and he was a few years ahead of me. <laughs> and I just remember one day I was in the gym, and I saw him, and um, we were kind of walking the same direction, and there are, the, uh, there are a bunch of people walking the other way, and they're like, there he is, there he is. And I was like, oh, they're, they're talking to me? And they're like, oh, no, Shoyana, you're my TA. <laughs> I was like, he's like a celebrity. It's like, oh, wow. Um, and I guess there's no doubt about it that, I, you know, I think he must be intellectually gifted beyond off the charts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think 
it must have been tough and it must still i mean he must he's in his must be in his early 20s now and he's you know an attending physician it's tough because of the um, how much of our job as we as you mentioned being smart is the last thing on the list that you know the emotional intelligence and maturity and that's necessary to kind of be a doctor well the, i think that's quite true i i do think that evolves honestly way over time yeah like i think about who am i now versus who was I when I first started as a faculty member. I'm a little embarrassed to think about the way I was. Well, there are embarrassing things even now, but mm. I'm saying that you grow, you continuously grow. Some of that, though, comes from being very, you, I think all of us want to be and try to be self-reflective, right? Yeah. What is it I could do better the next time in this interaction, or how could I have communicated that better? That is what allows that growth to happen. I'll tell you, there's, there's no place that you can see that growth better than your um, email history. Read an email you sent from five years ago where oh. you asked somebody for something. Oh, I cringe. I was about to oh, say. I, cr- I die. I'm like, oh, God, who is this person? <laughs> Idiot. Why are you writing like this? You know, it's just too much explanation, not getting to the point, you know, not being succinct and yeah. not being confident. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, because this man, you know, so I, I sometimes cringe. And then I'm like, and that reminds you that even when you're in your 30s, it's still, you're still improving your communication. Absolutely. You know, the other question you asked was, you know, how do you help learners who yeah, are struggling? struggling. Um, I would say every learner has struggles. Like, it doesn't matter whether you are the best or you've been told you're the best or you've been told there are many things you need to work on. Everybody has something to work on. Um, I think it's why, um, from a learning perspective, you should have an individual learning plan. Everybody should have that, Mm. right? Why do we get reviews every year from our division heads? Right. Because it's an opportunity to reflect and say, what is it that I need to do differently? What goals am I going to set? Right. So I would almost move this conversation away from the idea that there are those who are really high performing who need nothing right and those who are lower performing and need something right actually everybody needs something everybody needs something and then yeah. it's how much you need to invest in each person is going to vary but that's okay right yeah. because everybody's growth as we know when anytime you look at these kinds of charts they are varied for every single individual like again i think back to how was i as a medical student then as a resident then as an early faculty to, I'm going to call myself mid-career faculty, <laughs> which I know people might debate. That, I mean, I look back and think, ah, there are things I was told as a resident that um, frankly are embarrassing now, but they were the right things that I needed to be told in order to do better. Hmm. I wasn't, by the way, the great resident. <laughs> I definitely needed that kind of advice. So I guess my point is... But you must have improved because you became, you became the chief. I mean, you must have... By the, yeah, the people thought well of you in your residency. Well, I'm going to say yes. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess I feel the same way. I mean, I certainly don't think... I, well, I know I wasn't um, the best intern, and I probably grew a lot as a resident. And I still feel like, you know, you grow a lot as a fellow and fellowship. And then mm-hmm. even in fa- as a faculty, the first five years of faculty, um, the way you think about medicine um, changes quite a bit. And the way you yeah. think about, you know, your own goals. And 
I guess I would say that like one of the things I feel grateful for in academic medicine is that I can realize that there is a certain disease process, a certain presentation that I see from time to time and I've never really sat down and like read all the papers about it. and then I can take like this Tuesday I'm going to spend you know I'm going to do that I'm going to I'm going to learn this pre- this thing that is kind of out of my toolbox um, what about the faculty um, part of it being a program director is you inherently feel a desire to protect and shield and get the best for your you're an advocate for your residents mm-hmm. I know that to be true and there are got to be, a, especially at this place, we're fortunate. There's majority of faculty who you know are helping you in every way possible, and you, I'm sure you're very happy with. There's got to be some faculty that you just want to strangle. <laughs> 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 um, so, what what do you do? But I, I guess hmm. one thing that you might consider doing is you move the residents away from certain people. You move them where you want to move them to. Um, do you think about that? Um, or the other thing is you give the faculty feedback, uh, mm-hmm. but they may be more senior to you and they may have been here longer and they may have NIH grants. And mm-hmm. if you tell someone with an NIH grant what to do, you can't tell them what to do. <laughs> um, so how do you think about it? That must be the hard part, the political part of the job. I, you know, um, maybe this is evolving over time for me. Um, the sense that feedback probably should never matter, whether you're giving it to a student to your child, to a faculty member, Hmm. right? This is human to human interaction about something that someone has observed. And being able to give that feedback and just be honest, right? Because most feedback, I would say most, usually is coming from a good place because somebody has observed something that they feel like would be helpful. Now, I think we all are afraid to give feedback right it's all the implications and when you use that word political it's sort of like what is the implication if I give this feedback for this person yeah how are they going to feel what's going to happen who's going to be upset I think if you can come from this place of genuine compassion for why you're there to give that piece of feedback right it's not about chastising you for a behavior it's trying to understand what happened in that circumstance because you know when we were talking earlier about burnout yeah this is a great example of that most people want to always do good in almost all situations period Mm -hmm. and the reason sometimes that we don't or can't or find ourselves not being able to Mm -hmm. is because it's something else that is driving that right and so Mm -hmm. part of um trying to have a session with someone where you feel like that could have gone better is to ask what do you think happened you know what what happened here do you do that face-to-face I prefer the face-to-face I just think um email you can emoticon your way through an email (laughs) I suppose but um it really is best and and it doesn't matter to you if this is a emeritus professor or if it's a a clinical instructor well in in all fairness yeah the fact that I've gotten older probably has helped. Um, you know, some gray hairs. I didn't say how many. <laughs> right? Those things do, I, they do help. They if do I, help. If I tell I, you, yeah. Right? I, if I had to have done this 10 years ago, yeah. I bet you, you and I would be, it would be like the cringeworthy email. Hmm. We'd probably have a, a different conversation, and I would say I probably had some cringeworthy sessions. I see. Right? I would say that looking older, I find helps in medicine, not just with like interacting with other faculty, but even with patients. You know, I, 
used to get a lot like you look like you're 12 years old kind of comments <laughs> and it, and there's something to say for like uh well you see that I like I'm wearing a suit right now it's uh, a very nice suit oh thank you uh I started doing that in clinic and I think um you know you want to I don't know maybe it's because maybe I need to delete this. <laughs> no, I was like but maybe I'll t- I just admit, I mean I, part of the reason I wear the suit is because I look I think I fear I look young and I don't want to look young um and I do think that you know that does matter in these interactions in a very subtle way and I'm not sure it's the way the world should be but it's the way the world is yeah and again I, th- I do really think aside from the fact that I probably am a little more comfortable I think again if you come from a place of genuine compassion I'm here to give you feedback because I think this is an important part of a conversation that we should have right again most people want to do good let me tell you about my feedback giving and and maybe you can tell me that I'm doing something wrong so one I'll admit to you I am afraid to give it um, it makes me uncomfortable and nervous to tell somebody whom I usually know for a small period of time but not a large period of time um, sometimes to tell them something that you know I feel like is one of those things that is just so easily left unspoken so I find I'll admit to you I have that apprehension then the next thing I do is I reflect, I think about like this person and I think about all the things they did well and I think about some of the things that I feel like they, in my mind, they could improve. And then I also, then I have this anxiety of like knowing that like um, so many people gave me feedback that was, um, that contradicted other people's feedback. Mm-hmm. And then you come to the conclusion that some of these things are preference issues, um, like how you write your note and how you put right. that, you know, these kinds of things. And then I think, okay, now I've, I have my feedback in my mind. Let me remove anything that may be a preference issue mm-hmm. because I don't want to burden somebody with the kind of thing that I was frustrated with as a trainee because I know somebody else will tell them the opposite. So that's for them to decide the preference issues. But what are the, some of the core parts of being a doctor that I think maybe that I feel like I could comment about? Okay, then this is where I start to get the paralysis. Then I think, okay, I got to sandwich it. I got to have something very positive. Then I have my sort of um, thing to improve upon. And then I end with something very positive to cushion the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then I have the meta level question, which is this, which is this anxiety of like, okay, I I want this person to make this change. Um, Is the way to get them to make the change to tell them outright? Or is it to... um, lead them down that road, tell them half of it, tell them a quarter of it, tell them the next half a year from now, when I say, you know, something like that. Um, or, you know, and will they dislike me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, because I, 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 I don't want people to dislike me. Um, although you may wonder why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> if I was so curious, if I was so concerned about it. It's like, why is this guy, this guy makes this crazy podcast? Um, so I don't know. How do you, is that, am I, am I overthinking it? What am, am no, I? No, no. So one is, uh, you know, I don't even pretend to be the expert in feedback. It has been an iterative process for me to figure out where do I draw my comfort in being able to do this. I do think some of it is also, we all need to be open to feedback as much as we're willing to give feedback, right? Mm-hmm. So if you create this environment of saying, I'm open to feedback, but I'm also not going to be afraid to give feedback. I thought, I, I think your approach is really quite wonderful and I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't see anything of what you said. I feel like I have that same conversation when I need to give feedback. Mm-hmm. There's a the lot of angst, oh, yeah. it's a lot of angst, right? Because again, it's all wrapped up in all these other things. Um, I'm, I have done the sandwich, as they talk about. Yeah, yeah. But I've also learned that there's the open face, right? Where you just start with, 
The critical thing? The thing that you feel like is important for them to hear so that it's heard. Mm-hmm. Now, open means that there is a... a yeah, a piece of bread at the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there should be some thickness to that bread. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, and I don't know what the right approach is. Um, I've probably done all various kinds, right? Giving it just straight, nothing else, just the feedback. Sometimes it's been sandwiched. Sometimes it's open. Um, I don't. I don't know what the right thing is. And as you know... People take things differently, even when you come from a good place. And I think all you can do as the person giving feedback is to say, I'm coming from a place because I do care. I care about this relationship. I care about this interaction. This is why it's important to me. You're important to me. Otherwise, why would I spend the time, right? Because there are so many things that happen in your environment in which you could probably provide feedback 3,000 times a day if you wanted to. But what we are deciding constantly is what matters the most Yeah, that I'm going to spend that time in that relationship to give that feedback. Yeah. And I guess so. I mean, a lot of times I approach the feedback from the point of view of, of like, um, it's like I view it as like, you know, it's a rare opportunity to like meet somebody in a time when their idea of what it means to be a doctor is still coalescing, still mm-hmm. forming. And I do recognize that, sadly, although I wish it weren't the case, that for a lot of us it's kind of cemented and it's hard to shatter that cement mm-hmm. and get it to reform. Um, and so I think a lot about, like, um, what what kind of skills does this person need to improve on so that someday when they're out there in the world, they're providing, I think, better medical care. And I think of that as, like, what does it mean to be better medical care? I think it's care that's like very reflective of what we know for sure, what we don't know for sure, and when we don't know it for sure, we're very transparent about the risks, benefits, and alternatives, and we're having good conversations with people, and we're not just making decisions for other people, um, unless, of course, the patient tells you that, look, I want you to make decisions for it, you know, that kind of person, right. and but at least so that you can understand that. And so, the, you know, that's the kind of person I'm trying to create, and also this kind of person who's willing to, like, improve their fund of knowledge so they know more about the science of it. Um, since I do oncology a lot, one of the things, and since I think there's kind of this certain juggernaut of narrative of oncology um, that I think some of which is obviously very true, but some of which is kind of industry-sponsored spin, one of the things that I always get frustrated with is when I hear some, you know, somebody tell me, it's not, it's not always a trainee, but somebody tell me something that is, you know, literally that's just reciting something that some industry sponsored group loves to say but it's not factually you know never been tested and not true and i guess i struggle with like how to kind of address those issues because part of me knows that you know this person is is saying this and um a lot of people would say such a similar thing and i guess my only goal in trying to give the feedback there is to say like when you hear things in this world in medicine especially in my field that is heavily driven by a for-profit motive and heavily driven by an industry-sponsored trials agenda, you gotta, I want you to be, you gotta be a little bit critical and you gotta, you know, fact-check things you hear. Um, because otherwise you're you're just gonna be, um, you know, the like a spoon that's bent into whatever shape someone else wants you mm-hmm. to be. And, and you don't want that. I mean, you wanna make up your own mind. That's yeah, parroting. Not, we, yeah. Don't, we don't wanna be parroting, right? right? We always tell yeah. learners, you should question everything including yeah. what i say yeah i tell them that but then i don't like what they do <laughs> i was like not that except, except that <laughs> so let me ask you um did the res- did the residents give you feedback i 
Well, here's the tough part. I yeah. ask for it. So when I'm on service, I say, in order for me to grow, I have got to get feedback. Yeah. What's tough about that, as you know, is that is a power differential. I'm the program director. They're a resident on the service. They're going to, I know that they're probably thinking, there's probably something I, I, I probably should tell you, but I don't know what it means. And I don't know how to break that barrier. So the most that I feel that I can do is to say, I truly am asking. Because if you don't tell me, who will? There's no other attending with me. That's the other thing, right? It's so quickly in medicine that you're never around with another attending. Well, and you and I know this. As you continue in your career, I bet you we actually do get less and less feedback. Yeah. As a trainee, certainly as a student, how many times were you asking for feedback? Give me more feedback. I want more feedback. You write it in evals. Yeah. Give me more feedback. Yeah, yeah. But as a faculty member, you get less and less. And as you keep moving along in whatever your career path is, people are less willing to do that. And I don't know how except to keep saying it matters to me. I just say that I get a lot of email feedback. (laughs) 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 I could could use a little less on some fronts, but... but Because I thought you people are going to email me. <laughs> I got a lot of emails lately. Well, it's, it's more feedback than I needed. But um, but I will say, but you're right, from trainees, people from trainees. you're actually working with, and clinically and clinical feedback, which is the thing that, right. you know, it's this total void. And then, um, and I do agree with you that, that that power differential, somebody who worked with me just told me that, you know, we really like hearing your lectures, even when we've heard it already. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you're just saying that. That was a nice open sandwich feedback <laughs> yeah, nice right there. open sandwich feedback. Because <laughs> I was debating putting out an episode of this podcast that's a, that's like the same lecture I've given. I put out one episode. I put out very like a s- similar lecture just to see, you know, how a lecture morphs when you go to a different audience. But, okay. Well, yeah, I think that's an important thing. And um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of having gotten feedback. I mean, <laughs> I guess... So much of the feedback I've gotten over the years, you know, I don't know if I always agreed with it in the moment, mm-hmm. but sometimes with the wisdom of retrospect, I did see that there's some lots of things right about that feedback. And if you can recognize that a feedback is good within six months of receiving it, that's a win, uh, because right. that's when you can really start to course correct. Um, sometimes one of the things that I hear about feedback forum is like, um, uh, sometimes I disagree about the feedback. It's mm-hmm. you know I uh, you know somebody because the feedback is about sort of logistics or work or um, you know and and the reason I disagree is that I think that like I don't disagree with the person telling me that like in the moment if you didn't have to do X or Y or Z your life would be better. I concede that that would be true. You know there's no disagreement there. But the disagreement is that I think you know having been a few years ahead I think in the long run you will be grateful for having done these things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, I mean, that makes me think about is um, um, the FDA approves a lot of cancer drugs. And a couple of years ago, when I started here, I created this thing where the fellows would be assigned a new drug approval and they'd present, um, you know, 10 minutes. What what was this drug? What was the mechanism of action? Why was it approved? What was the efficacy data? Um, and then finally, like, you know, would you have approved it? Do you think it's filling an important niche? And is this data convincing to you? And uh, initially, when I put that out there, as with any new uh, curriculum of proposals, it was met with uh, some resistance, mm. and I got some feedback, and uh, <laughs> I got some, and it was an open-faced sandwich. Uh, uh, it might have just been uh, uh, a gluten-free sandwich. <laughs> it might have just been the meat. Um, so I got some feedback, but you know, I just thought to myself that let's just stick with this because 
you know, I know it's going to be good for them in the long run mm. because none of us can. Keep, it's it's not just like it's for their sake; it's for everybody's sake. Like none of us can keep up with all these things. And if each person is assigned one, it spreads the workout. It's only ten minutes, and now it's a couple years later, and now that it's just been in, you know, people came into it knowing that it's something to do. People like it. I well, right. at least you know, I think people like it. They well, it sounded like they were willing to give you feedback anyway. <laughs> yeah, before. In the so <laughs> yeah, I think when you initiated it, it was difficult. Because it was like, oh, here's yet another thing to mm. do. But now the new fellows are coming in. They know it's going to happen. So they're just like, okay. But now they like it because, like, there's no other way to keep up with, you know, all the things that we deal with. Well, I think you're getting at this really important point when having a conversation with another person, i.e. in the feedback setting. You have to ask that person, okay, well, if you're receiving the feedback, you have to say, okay, what part of this feedback feels like the things I really should be hearing because as you pointed out there are preference issues that are related to feedback right those are not the things to be paying necessarily attention to all of the time right but there is usually what I tell people is there is always a kernel of truth in all feedback whether you fully agree with it or not Mm. and your job is to figure out what is that kernel of truth Mm. and take that Right, I said feedback is more about you growing, and the only way you grow is if you can take it, critically look at it, and say, what's important here? What do I want to change? So for for that was a great example of saying, I think the overall idea of the curriculum is still worth the time. Yeah. But maybe there were certain components that we needed to change or do differently. Yeah. And now it's successful. So I, I do think there is a way to not only give feedback, but to receive it and decide how will I take it and what will I do next. That's well put. And, you know, it actually makes me think of, like, the manuscript process. Hmm. Sometimes when you get, like, a reviewer saying things that uh, my first reaction is obviously something that will have to be censored <laughs> on the podcast. But then uh, but then sometimes you think about it and you're like, what is the kernel that this person is getting at? And and I think, um, you know, that sometimes it's like, you're like, oh, this person just doesn't understand. But what you really should be thinking is like, I've written this in a way that a smart person doesn't understand. So can I write this in a way that really breaks it down for so this reviewer would read it again and say, oh, that was answered, you know, that was addressed. And so I do think, you know, you could apply this kind of philosophy to other situations mm-hmm. and it would it would go a long way. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know our time is is running low. Um, I want to thank you again for coming on this podcast. I think anyone out there who, um, well, first of all, I think anyone out there should consider a career in internal medicine. I think medicine is the most interesting thing in medicine. Um, Someday, if you're a really good internist, you're going to be the kind of person that any family member could call you and say, my loved one my I'm feeling X, Y, or Z, and you can sort of steer them on the right way. And and that, I think, is a lot of why a lot of us went into medicine, because mm-hmm. we wanted to be that person for people in our lives. And so I think internal medicine gives you that core focus. And then I would go on and make the plug that if anyone's interested in internal medicine, I think they have to consider your program extremely highly, um, because I have only been impressed by the residents I've worked with and only heard uh, glowing things, so many that I, I didn't even believe they were. No, <laughs> I believe them uh, about you know what I'm you've done with the now. program. I've paid out a lot of money. Oh you, yeah, right. <laughs> you've had to bribe all these residents. Um, and I think uh, before we came on, we were talking a little bit about the fellowship match, which was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, I congratulated you um, on such a successful match because people matched at you know world class institutions all around this country, uh, including our own institution in many fields. Um, 
and uh, and you told me that uh, you you felt like congratulations was in order, but it but it shouldn't be going to you. Um, it should be going to the residents and and the faculty that kind of mentored them. Um, but I think a lot of it should go to you too. So I wanted to thank you for because I think you gave them a place where they felt they introduced them to the right people and you paired them well and um, and you guided them through that whole process. Uh, any any last thoughts for our listeners? Uh, well, one is thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's been a pleasure. I was practically giddy this morning thinking oh. about the being able to do this with you. The second is um, I really appreciate your kindness um, in what you've said. Um, the truth is, you know, we're all on the same boat, moving mm-hmm. in the same direction. Um, and so I, the more we all can do to raise each other up, the mm-hmm. better we become, not just as people, but institution, the culture of medicine. So uh, you have given as much as you're saying that I'm giving to the residents. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I you asked me if I have last words now. Here, here they are. <laughs> um, you've been an incredible mentor, and I do think that's why when you brought up the fellowship issue, I mean, honestly, without mentors, none of us would be where we are, right? Mm-hmm. I think we talked about this at the very beginning. Yeah, We are an amalgamation of all of these people we've interacted with, yeah. and I think you and others have done the same for the residents. They will be able to look back on their career and say, I remember when. I was touched by this person or that person. So I really do think the thanks is to everybody. That's um, very kind of you. But, but thank you um, for, one, being such a phenomenal mentor to our residents. Um, and then having this forum, it, um, it's really quite incredible. I have enjoyed all of your podcasts. I, we were talking earlier. Uh, yeah. We both bike commute. Um, yeah. So I promise I only put one earphone in. The other <laughs> ear is free. Um, and then I listen. And it's, it's phenomenal. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you. And uh, I listen to podcasts, too, when I bike commute. And uh, I won't comment about how many earbuds I have in. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Desai. Thanks Thank for coming you. on the show. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, How can we improve? Finally, plenary session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. (laughs) 